Welcome back to the Bioinformatics and Beyond podcast. I'm Leo Elworth, and we are joined again today by Dr. Afshin Veheshti, who is a bioinformatician and principal investigator at the KBR NASA Ames Research Center, a visiting researcher at the Broad Institute, and the president of the COVID-19 International Research Team. For this episode, we are talking about COVID and microRNAs. What are microRNAs and how do they relate to viral illnesses like COVID and how might they potentially even influence the severity of illness and therapeutics design? Well, let's find out since Dr. Beheshti recently presented at the third covert research symposium on a new work he led on exactly these topics. So Dr. Beheshti, thank you once again for agreeing to do this. And why don't I lead off by just asking what are microRNAs? Yep. Thanks for having me again. Yeah. So microRNAs are, as as the title says, small RNAs. They're micro. So to give a little history, um, before the before 2000, like the first time someone actually paid attention to this, these small RNA was in 1993, where someone was studying uh, these small what what we previously thought was junk because you can think of them. They're very small. They're 22 nucleotides in size or roughly that, it could be plus or minus uh, four or five nucleotides depending on the microRNA. And and before that, people thought it was just debris. So no one paid attention to it, but then this one smart person came along and looking at when they were studying worms, and they noticed these small RNA actually do some functional things. And then there was a 70-year silence. No one paid attention to it again. And in 2000, a group of people started paying attention again and noticed that you know these small RNAs are actually... Uh, involved in a lot of different functions and started and it's quickly you know in the past uh, 20 years it, it quickly exponentially grew in research and people are now doing a lot of work on it and so the well, what a microRNA is basically is a is one form of something called a non-coding RNA so it means basically where regular biological processes what happens is you know you got DNA transcribing to RNA and then translating RNA translates to proteins so RNA is basically just translations Regular RNAs basically has that regular translation process to proteins, but a non-coding RNA, which is microRNA is one form of them, does not make proteins. But what we found out in the past 20 years and more and more research coming out, it's still sort of the Wild West because in biology, 20-year-old thing is still kind of its infancy, is that my, the microRNAs are involved in every process of, of, of this classical molecular biology view. So one thing is that we know that single microRNA can regulate hundreds and hundreds of genes. So it, it could basically, what it is, is these small fragments or these small RNAs, I, sh- I should say, can, can bind to your genes, so your messenger RNA. And when they bind to these genes, it's, it's classically was thought it could it had, it'll suppress them. But now we know it could also overexpress genes you know, in, in your body. And this can cause, and there's good microRNAs that are involved in regular pathways and regular biology that you want things to happen to suppress or overexpress. But of course, as anything else, there's bad ones that would, if they're, if these microRNAs become activated, you know, will cause suppression in your body of genes that shouldn't be suppressed. Like cancer has tons of microRNAs. Every disease has one. And, and again, due to the size and the stability of it, because of the size, these microRNAs are basically free floating as say quotation marks in your body. You know, they're found in every fluid that in your body. So when I say quotation mark free floating, because there's basically three different forms of free-floating microRNA you can think of. One is like they're floating freely, but they have this protein attached to them called agoprotein, which basically helps them get in and out of cells. So the fragment, the RNA strands are exposed, but it is okay because they're stable and can do that in your bodily fluids. 
Another form is packed in these uh, extracellular kind of vesicles or exosomes are called, you know, so that that's they're packed in there and that gets in and out of cells that way. And another part, it could be packed with lipids. So, you know, the, those three different forms of free floating microRNA is a way that it, it, in your body can either do good or bad as it's floating around. And the other great thing about microRNAs or maybe bad thing, depending on what, what you're looking at in disease context is that because they're smaller, they're very highly conserved between different species. They're found, microarrays are found in everything from plants to microbes to, you know, of course, humans and every kind of thing in between. So, you know, due to their size, microarrays tend to be highly conserved between, let's say, for example, mice, humans. So for experiments that you imagine you can do, on, you know, in your lab, that, that's beneficial because the results you might get from a mouse experiment can easily translate to humans. So I guess in a nutshell, that's what microRNAs are. Beautiful explanation. Okay, so we're going to be talking about viruses and like COVID-19. How does everything you just described about microRNAs, how does that relate to viruses? So yeah, that's, that's again, this, as I said, microRNAs are very new and it's a wild west. So this, this field of microRNAs and viruses are even newer and it's even a lot less known. <laughs> but, but we do know that viruses do a strange uh, interplay with microRNAs where what has been noticed in the past literature from other viruses, and I'll get into SARS-CoV-2 uh, right after that because it's, it's really related, is that you know what what viruses has been observed to do is to incorporate the microRNA genome into itself. Human body doesn't recognize the virus because it's a foreign object. You know the genome's not similar, but by the virus incorporating a a small sequence of the or a small part, like an eight base, for example, part of the of the microRNA into its genome, now the, it can trick the human body to think, oh, I recognize a sequence that's similar that should be here in my body. So then, of course, it uses that system. The virus can use that system to evade the immune system because now the human body immune system thinks it's, it's not foreign anymore, which is a bad thing, right? So, the, but the viruses are clever that way. They they take they try to use the biology in our human, you know, in, in, in humans to actually counteract that and make make it so it can survive in, the, in our body. And the other part is like when it incorporates these kind of, you know, parts of the microRNA into the into the virus. It also would help it maybe replicate better because microRNAs can, do have benefits for uh, replication in cells. So it uses all the machinery, beneficial parts of the machinery that even to be used in microRNAs to have the virus thrive. And there was a pretty nice paper that came out three years ago. It was 2018. So yeah, three years ago in hepatitis C literature where they, they identified that you know even a microRNA using this machinery can really drive a virus. So it was hepatitis C and the microRNA, I think, was a mere um, so when you look at microRNAs, how they're labeled, they're MIR, M-I-R, so it's standing for microRNAs, and then a number associated with it. And it's number sequentially, going from, you know, the first microRNAs discovered one to whatever it is now in the thousands. So, you know, that one is MIR-122, I think. And then, so what happened is basically, you know, they found out that this one microRNA is, is incorporated, like I said, into the virus. And then that's what's driving potentially hepatitis C. So, you know, and what it does is basically in the, in, in the long run is it would help promote that potential microRNA in your body to be overexpressed. So kind of like sending out your army to take care of the land in front of you so that you could, you know, create a new landscape for you to easily survive. So that's that's in the former microRNA literature. That's what has been known. There's there's still a lot unknown. So that people are still diving in and figuring out how to do this. And then potential ways, you know, you can use microRNAs. And, and there's the other part where microRNAs are not incorporated into the virus, but the biological impact the virus does on the human body can overexpress um, as a secondary thing, as a secondary impact in your body, your microRNAs to be overexpressed. 
So then that would actually then cause, you know, um, bad health effects like infl- inflammatory issues. So, but for SARS-CoV-2 specifically, people are looking at microarrays, but not as much as other things. And this is, I guess, where I come in with my microRNA work. Yeah, so in your work, you identified a microRNA that seemed to drive or be driven by SARS-CoV-2 infection. So how did you go about that? How did you find this out and isolate, let's say, the particular microRNA being like of interest here? Yeah, so with microRNA work, there's a lot of different tools you can use, computational tools that you can use. So you know, typically the ideal way that people do microRNA studies is they would want to first sequence everything. So there's things about microRNA sequencing. So you sequence for the small RNAs and then you would in a system and then you would get basically the global kind of big profile of all the microRNAs that are being changed and you could whittle down like the key drivers. Unfortunately, when uh, since this is a completely novel virus in March 2020, that's not the focus of many people's area research. But what people do work on, you know, do sequence is your RNA, so your genes. So there's an abundant amount of those that data available because people tend to do that. It's the more of the low hanging fruit, and you get a lot more information. It's not just specific. So there are basically a bag of tricks and tools that people use, like myself, and everyone has their favorite version of it, where you can in silico predict microRNAs that are being regulated due to the gene expressions. So as I said before, you know, microRNAs can bind to RNA and suppress it or overexpress it. And there's basically databases out there, microRNA databases out there that know, let's say we have a specific microRNA, what potential targets it has. This is from previous work done or computational people have figured out potential targets of the binding energies between, you know, the microRNA to the RNA or the genes. So that's that's where you know where I started in was you know there was publicly available omics RNA sequencing data out there and I used my bag of tricks. This was in a bronchial alveolar lavage fluid data set that was around first from a Chinese population that they made public from sequences from SARS-CoV-2 infected patients versus uh, negative patients. So uh, COVID infected patients, positive, negative. So what we saw basically then is that using my bag of tricks, I was able to predict a handful of microRNAs that that potentially could be involved in SARS-CoV-2 infection in people. And out of those handful, there's like 10 of them and nine of them were suppressed and one of them was overexpressed. So this, this is important because typically, um, you know, for microRNAs, when they're suppressed, those could be potential biomarkers you could use to, let's say, associate the disease. To create a mimic and cause them to become overexpressed is a lot harder to do due to the microRNA machinery as opposed to silencing microRNA. So if, if uh, microRNAs are overexpressed for diseases, is those are usually the targeted ones that I want to look at because you could create an antisense or basically the antagonist to that sequence of that microRNA easily. And then if, let's say if these microRNAs are floating around your body and you have a bunch of antagonists to them, or what we call them antagomeres also, you can all just bind to these floating microRNA sequences. So now these microRNAs become inert and they don't bind to your actual genes in your body and cause bad things. And then your body will just flush them up. So it'll be basically debris at that point. So that's how it started, you know, where the whole looking at um, publicly available RNA sequencing data and then using my bag of tricks to work backward to predict what microRNAs might be potentially involved. And so you found one microRNA that seems like it was being having increased level kind of connected to SARS-CoV-2 infection. And from your actually talk that you gave, you had mentioned also when I listened to that about the mechanics of like 
again, the connection here of the mechanics of the connection between that and like the SARS-CoV-2 genome and like how this would work like in an infection. Can you explain like, for instance, you talked about the the seeding region and mechanics of how it works for the pathway regulation between the specific microRNA and like the SARS-CoV-2 genome, for instance? Sure. So yeah, so all microRNAs have this thing called a seeding region, which is an eight base region of the microRNA that's the most important for it to bind. And so that, that binding region is called always a seeding region. So when you look at the microRNA literature, some people say this is the seeding region and it has uh, eight base conservation to, let's say, these genes. So that means it's optimal. If that whole ba- eight bases binds to something that, or, it's, or that part's integrated, for example, in a viral genome, that's important too. So that definition is important because it comes into play with the viral issue. So the microRNA that we had identified to be upregulated in, suppose, in the in silico method was is called MIR-2392. So that's uh, microRNA-2392. And, and as you can imagine, the, the numbers I said, it's a discovery. The more, the higher it goes, the less, you know, the, it's the more recent microRNA. So when you go in the thousands, there's less known about the microRNAs and they're labeled 2392. So there's only like six papers on this microRNA out and they're all with the cancer literature, not viral literature. But so, so one thing is, um, you know, so the seeding region, how when I mentioned how micro- viruses can incorporate the microRNA into the genome, into it, they usually incorporate that seeding region, eight base, because that's the most important part of the machinery is involved in that eight base sequence. And what we found using Encelico methods in collaboration, so this project, you know, since SARS-CoV-2 had started and COVID started, a lot of science labs, it's a very open science and collaborative field. So this is the only way we've been able to push forward. Like this paper right now that's under review, um, we're going to hopefully get it out soon. The preprints available, as Leo said. So this, this is a large collaborative effort. So, you know, there's about 40 authors, a little more than 40 authors on there. So it's not just work I did myself. It's lots of people and open science is the way forward. So some work that was done by Todd Tregan at Rice University with his graduate student, Nick, they looked at, because the whole idea is, if we're talking about, is this microRNAs incorporating the virus? So what they did was, you know, I asked them, can you see how well that A-base is conserved over the SARS-CoV-2 genome? And we indeed, once they did their nice analysis, they saw that the eight bases is, is conserved in multiple regions in the virus. And the top hits were basically regions like they're called NSP2, NSP3, or 10. You know, uh, those are the top hits that were there, but there was multiple regions. And when they say top hits, it's like multiple regions in those parts of the virus, it, it, it was conserved. And so it's not random. And in the parts that it was conserved highly, it makes sense. For example, one of the regions is NSP2, which is people think that's really as replication. So if the if the microRNA seeding region is there and we know that viruses do one mechanism to use microRNA machinery for replication, that makes sense for it to be there. So that was how we found out, okay, indeed, that the, the genome of the virus has incorporated this microRNA specifically into it. That leads it further to the hypothesis, you know, becoming important. So then that's the idea where, you know, you could probably potentially show that this is, you know, back to the hepatitis C microRNA virus where that's could be a driving force, you know, this microRNA in this in the SARS-CoV-2. Okay. And so from there, then you started looking further into the story. So for instance, there was some morgue slash autopsy samples. There were some human cell lines and, and even eventually the climax was like looking at like real patient samples. Do you want to talk us through all the sure. additional samples from there, yeah. As most people know, science is a whole step-by-step process. But the good thing, I mean, well, uh, the the good thing about a large collaborative team is, you know, some research like this that might take five, six years, 
the amount of work and openness and the amount of collaborative efforts that people had a 10 year project t- could take like one year. <laughs> so that was a benefit. I guess if there's any benefits to this virus, the one thing we did learn, you know, with COVID is that we learned that science should be done this way, this, you know, large collaborative teams. But uh, so, yeah, you mentioned the autopsy data. So um, in collaboration with Chris Mason, uh, he's a, a professor at Cornell Well Medicine in New York. So he's, he, what he had done is sequence, get samples from nasal pharyngeal swabs from COVID patients early on, and lots of them, like about a thousand patients. And then, and then in the process too, he, he was with other collaborators at Cornwall Medicine. When uh, the unfortunate case, when people die of COVID, they would take the autopsy from the autopsy of the patients, they'll take the organs and sequence them. So for example, the heart, the liver, you no know, kidney, lymph nodes, and, and liver and kidney, lymph nodes, and lungs, sorry. So that was the last one. So they, so from there, um, they did, uh, again, RNA sequencing on it. And then what we did was, you know, as I said earlier, from, from microRNA databases, you could look at what targets, gene targets, that could be related to these microRNAs. So for microRNA 2392, we specifically look at the gene targets and how it overlaid with these sequencing data from patients. And we saw indeed that like a lot of the targets that were related to this microRNA were being observed to be dysregulated, either increase like inflammatory things that were related to the targets were increased or suppressed, for example, mitochondrial functions. We know in COVID patients, mitochondrial, your bioenergetics in your cells, in your body is heavily suppressed. And this microRNA is involved in that process. We saw that due to that patient data coming in and sequencing data. So that was one great aspect that we were able to see, okay, the targets are being heavily regulated in COVID patients, whether they're, whether they die or whether they're sick and they recover, it's there. So we see that's involved. So then the next aspect is if, you know, what we're saying is true is that is this microRNA truly driving the virus and truly driving all the downstream impact that health and health that we see? What if we just overexpress this microRNA in a healthy cell line? So no virus. So you take it and you say, so So that's what we did. So with a collaborator down in the Morehouse Medical School of Medicine, Rob Miller, professor down there, um, we we got these, you could overexpress microRNAs by creating, by getting mimics, you know, from companies that have kits. And then you transfect the cell and then you overexpress this in the cell. And he used like a healthy neuronal cell line. And then, you know, two days later, we uh, sequenced these cells to see what's the genetic profile, genes, what, gene, what genes are going up and down through the RNA sequencing. So that's what we did. And then what we saw, long story short for that, is if, if I had given that data set to someone who said blindly and said, analyze it and tell me what you think. Everything that popped out, someone would have said, you must have infected these cells with SARS-CoV-2 because all the pathways and the correlations we, found, we saw with actual patient samples was highly correlated. Like pathways that were related to SARS-CoV-2 popped up from our uh, bioinformatics analysis. So that was really promising because now that's the mechanism where you think, we didn't put any virus in the cell. We just overexpressed this microRNA, and all of a sudden we see this cell light up to look exactly like if the cell was affected with the virus, which was pretty not surprising and pretty agreeable with the story we're saying. So these are this is this is all good, but now what about patient samples? So this is really the climax, as you mentioned in the paper, where in the study, where um, with collaborators at University of Maryland clinicians there, they, they provided us with serum samples from COVID positive and negative patients and patients who were also intubated positive. Collaborators from University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, which uh, Jonathan Schisler down there, he, professor down there, he, he, he connected us with a whole team of people down there who were working on COVID. They provided us urine from COVID inpatient and outpatient for both negative and positive samples. And then we also got uh, nasal pharyngeal samples from 
COVID patients from the University of Maryland folks, for, and also other coronaviruses, just to see if this, if we could quantify this microRNA, is, and is it is it pan coronaviruses because you know you know the SARS-CoV-2 is a distant cousin of some of the cold viruses, so we got some of those samples and some other respiratory illnesses. And long story short, for this, what we saw, which is, was really impressive in the paper, is that we quantified the amount of microRNA in each of these samples. And what we saw in the patient samples uh, from the serum that the microRNA in normal, well, I could say healthy, healthy meaning that non, you know, COVID patients, that the levels of these microRNAs were significantly increased in the blood, in the serum. In the urine, even, we saw that, again, for COVID patients, whether they're inpatient or not, but inpatient or outpatient, they're significantly increased, statistically significantly increased. But what was interesting is the more severe cases, this was high, higher, higher significance and higher amounts of it were seen in the, both in the blood and the urine. And then what we saw from the nasal swabs, the nasal pharyngeal samples, is that oddly enough, this microRNA wasn't really any difference with COVID negative or positive patients. And it didn't have like any difference with the levels of, of whether you were the, the other types of coronaviruses. So this was interesting because now what this might indicate is that the reason a lot of people might not have, have missed this microRNA because a lot of people are doing samples from nasal swabs. You won't see this microRNA being really expressed like that. You might see the targets of it, but you won't see this microRNA actually being expressed. Because what happens is once the virus takes hold, then this microRNA starts perpetuating in the rest of the body in the blood and urine and cause and potentially other organs. So that's the aspect of the, you know, where it, it could be a, right now a good biomarker. And since there's no such biomarker or such thing as a biomarker yet for COVID, this might have potential and we're doing more future work to say, how can we use this as a biomarker? So it'd be easy way. Maybe, you know, you, you just get a urine sample, you go in and you'll know right away. Okay. If this microRNA is really overexpressed then you most likely have COVID. Very cool. Well, I usually will kind of ask questions on things I'm unclear about or I think need more explanation, but I feel like that was all explained so well. I, you know, it was crystal clear. So thank you for sharing all that. And I'll just say, I think it's a really cool, really interesting story. I mean, you've got me excited now having listened to this for, for a little bit now. You've got me excited about microRNA. So this is a really, really cool and really exciting. So great work. I guess. To end on your story, what about on the therapeutic side? So how can this information be used in the therapeutic space? You mentioned using it as like a biomarker. Maybe that would be more on like the diagnostic space, but what about like therapeutics? Yeah, so that's the second climax. So the, the paper, we started looking at that. So that's, that's, that's a good question because, you know, as in, in the microRNA literature, people have started doing this and I've done this for other types of outside of the virus where you can think about, you know, as I said, if you have a antagonist to this microRNA, and you bind the antagonist to like a bad microRNA floating in your body, then you make it inert because now it's not binding to your genes and, and now it's going to, you, you've blocked it from binding to anything else that would cause damage. So since we know that this microRNA is found in the serum and your bodily fluid and urine, that's what we started doing. We are working with folks like uh, Anushree Chatterjee, which she has a, she's a uh, University of Colorado, but she also has a startup called Satch Bio, which she, so she created a, basically, a, uh, she has a delivery system through a nano oligomer treatment. And basically what it is, you know, it's a delivery system. So what we said is, all right, we have the sequence, we found the antagonist sequence and she packaged the, nat, uh, the antagonist sequence into her delivery system of this nano oligomer. So then what we can do with that is now test it. And basically what it, you use that system by just sprinkling it in your cell culture, mix it with your media, and then 
you know, some of the experiments that are done um, in vitro, basically in cell culture, is to look at look at a dish of infected cells with the virus, and then you know they'll screen for drugs that might cause inhibition of that virus in the cells. And so this is what we started doing with some collaborators and biologists. Um, so basically, what we saw some promising results that you know indeed that maybe by inhibiting this we're starting to see inhibition of the virus now of course there's a lot more work to do and you know this is the beginning stages so and the key is to get funding so we're going to apply for grants and if there's any rich donors listening and want to help out <laughs> that's always the key to you know make a shameless plug but that's that's the way forward you know that we need the funding to actually do all these investigational new, new drug studies that requires and all the steps you have to take to get for example, FDA approval to say, okay, now you can do the clinical trials. That's in the work. So that's promising results. And I think that's the key where we have to do our studies and see, um, in addition to what we show in the paper, is like, okay, if, if indeed the theory is true, as you said, the diagnostic biomarker thing seems promising, but then the therapeutic angle seems to fall in it. And hopefully there'll be more promising results will come out in the next few months. Well, great work and great explanations. I've learned a lot. I think it's really exciting. I, again, I would ask you more, but I feel like you gave just such great explanations. So thank you again for that. And thanks for walking us through that story. And hopefully other folks get similarly excited and, and learn a lot from this. Just to conclude, I've got one final point to conclude. So we've already had our conclusion of our space biology series, but maybe this will be kind of like the postscript. Since we talked all about microRNAs, in your other paper on space biology and all of the things affecting space biology, you do talk about microRNAs. Do you want to give us the real quick high level of the connection between the microRNAs and the space biology and space omics research? Sure. Yeah. I can give you a really brief one. So I, first, let me back up and go into like what my philosophy is of microRNAs, which I, I don't think I've touched as much on. But I think like every kind of like disease, for example, has a microRNA signature, like in SARS-CoV-2. I'm finding one microRNA, but I think it's a rarity. It shouldn't usually be one. There's probably a group of microRNAs working together to like, cause that disease to be um, progressing. So, for example, cancer is going to have a whole 5, 10, or whatever the cancer is, will have a certain set of microRNAs that do that. And then you have to figure out what those are, how to block them, and then that could be a potential therapeutic. And the same goes for any kind of like insult to injury of the body. So, it's space biology work that I'm doing. You know, I, I applied this kind of same techniques. I said there's probably going to be a group of microRNAs that are going to be associated with all the damage caused by space. And so then I was able to determine a hand, a set of microRNAs, uh, 12 of them, 13 of them, that were uh, potentially associated with micro uh, spaceflight response and increasing health risks. And then long story short, we put out a paper last year on this where uh, we got actual samples from not, you know, not only mouse experiments done, but multiple different types of mouse and rodent experiments. And then we also looked at human samples from uh, the, that's the twin study data, which was from your previous episodes that Tej was talking about. So we saw indeed that this microRNA was in the twins itself too. And now we're doing ways to try to use microRNAs potentially to mitigate the damage caused by space. So we're doing a bunch of experiments. And like in, in one of the in vitro experiments that is in our paper, we completely mitigated space radiation damage and by inhibiting three microRNAs that I said should be associated with that. And it was one of the cleanest results to completely mitigate the damage caused in this 3D microvasculature, human microvascular tissue structure. Now we're doing a bunch of mouse experiments trying to figure out, fine tune it and figure out those. So, you know, the same ideas that I talked about SARS-CoV-2, 
if you identify the correct microRNAs for those diseases or certain diseases or certain events like space biology, I'm sure you could probably figure out not only for a good biomarker, but also potential therapeutics or countermeasures for those kind of settings. Awesome. All right, everyone. MicroRNAs. That's the future. Maybe. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> but I'm biased. <laughs> All right. Well, Afshin, good to talk to you again. And thank you very much for coming on the show. We'll, we'll go ahead and end it there. And great work. Really exciting. And again, hopefully other folks find this as exciting as I do. I think it's really cool. So thanks. Thanks for doing this. No, thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. I hope you found it interesting. If you did, if you learned something new and you enjoyed the show, I'd love to hear about it on Twitter. You can join the conversation and keep up with the newest episodes and past guests by following at BioInfoPod. Feel free to tweet at the show or send a DM about anything you liked, didn't like, who or what you'd like to see next, questions for future guests, or just chat about all things bioinformatics and, of course, beyond. It really does make my day to see people share on Twitter when they found the podcast useful. So definitely keep it coming. And again, that's at BioInfoPod. Finally, you can always help out by subscribing to the show, giving it a rating, or just recommending it to a friend who's interested in these topics. Thanks again, and see you next time.